Hello, and welcome to the Development Debrief with Catherine Van Sickle, the stories-based podcast that interviews professionals, donors, and thought leaders in the field of fundraising. Well, this week you've lucked out. You get a special peek at one of the pieces of our team's retreat that we did over the summer in July and August. We had a special guest come and talk to our team, and I've recorded it here for all of you to share. Listen, learn, and hear from Howard Stevenson, introduced by my very own boss, Veronica Martini. Let's go. Okay, should I get started then? Katrin, what do you think? Sounds great. Okay. Well, hello everyone. I am very pleased to welcome you to this special edition of the University Development Teams Retreat. I am delighted too that our very special guest has agreed to have his words of wisdom recorded as the live session of the Development Debrief, founded by our very own Catherine Van Sickle. And above all, I am both humbled and grateful to welcome and introduce Howard Stevenson, a mentor and teacher to me and to so many others in our field. Howard is the Seraphine Rock Professor of Business Administration Emeritus at Harvard Business School, as well as the former chair of the Harvard Business Publishing Company Board. He served three times as a senior associate dean at HBS and for two years served as vice provost of Harvard University. As the Seraphine Rock Professor, he spearheaded the business school's focus on the subject of entrepreneurship in the early 1980s. He currently is the director of CDM Smith and a trustee of Mount Auburn Hospital and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum and holds such positions in many other for-profit and not-for-profit institutions. Howard is the author of 16 books, including the most recent Problem Solving, How HBS Alumni Impact the World, Wealth and Families and Getting to Giving, Fundraising the Entrepreneurial Way. Now, as a mentor, and whether he knew it or not, he has taught me the value of patience, persistence, perspective, and questions. As busy as he has always been, he has never not been available, and he has never not asked direct and challenging questions. He has been generous with his time, his constructive critique, and most importantly, his kindness. Thank you for being with us, Howard. I will now pass it on to Catherine. After everything Vero just said, you can imagine we were, you know, talking for a long time to think about what to focus on because you have such breadth and depth of experience and you've done so much. But we ultimately decided to focus on two things. The first is around your career and your personal philanthropy. And then the second is to talk about fundraising in uncertain times, because in the spirit of this retreat and in the spirit of the time of year that we're in, we're planning and we're strategizing. So we're really looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Howard, do you remember the first gift that you raised? I was an Eagle Scout fairly early in my life. And probably the first money you raised was running around for the Boy Scouts. You know, some of it was hard work and some of it was just fun. Or how have you, how has your style evolved since then? Well, I've always thought that selling was important. And I think that's very true in fundraising. You know, we'll talk later, I'm sure, but I 
hate the notion you're here to help the organization. I think the organization is there to help you fulfill your philanthropic objectives. And if you can't do that, don't waste your time. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And we'll definitely go back to that point a little bit later. We but I think what that means, Catherine, is that you're here to help a cause, not to help an organization. Right. I think that's become even more potent and real since, you know, the change changes with COVID-19, just thinking about not the institutions, but the needs that the institutions can fill. Well, we asked for some questions from the group that we have on the screen right now, and one of them that came up was about family wealth. What are your observations about family wealth, and how would you advise us on approaching and working with a family philanthropically? Well, I don't think there's a single answer to that. You have some families that are using it as a lever to keep the family together, although in our family, I've decided that I would never put the kids together because I have a Mother Teresa and an Attila the Hun on the family. And uh, getting them to agree on what the cause was would be a, uh, I'd, I'd rather, you know, one of my sons said, if we're going to have a family meeting, I don't know what it is, but I'm in Australia. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I think you st depending on who you are, you start with the fact that we've been extremely lucky and we have an obligation to make a difference. And that's been the message to the kids forever. Uh, you know, you'll, you're fine, but the world isn't so fine. What do we do to help? And I think in terms of family wealth, you don't want to die the richest person in the cemetery. At least that's never been my goal. The question of how much do you give away? What do you leave? How do you uh, arrange it if there is something left in the family foundation? How should the decisions be made? Because most families fall apart over power, not for wealth. And that's unfortunately true in the not-for-profit. If you think of but if you think of the dimension of power and wealth, they, yeah, I understand that power gets you wealth in Africa and wealth gets you power in the United States, but they're different because power is very cooperative at the bottom. That's why mobs and unions form as we're seeing now, whereas wealth at the bottom is very competitive and wealth at the top is quite cooperative. I can do a deal with people as, as Vero mentioned, I done a lot of investing in companies, but power at the top is very competitive. And when I was at Sudbury Valley Trustees, we were trying to do some planning. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of said, maybe we ought to do a long range plan since we own land forever. What are we going to do to maintain it? Because as the suburbs moved on, uh, people decided that those trees behind them would cut their view. So what do you do? But I asked them to do some planning and they came back to the plan. And I said, it's really interesting. You don't mention any competitors. Um, who are our competitors for the philanthropic dollar? And they looked at me like, we're the best. 
And I said, well, why don't you come back with a list of uh, competitors? And it turned out in this little area of Route 2, Mass Pike, 495, and 128, we could identify 38 different groups that were interested in conservation. And uh, when I, they saw that, they, I said, well, tell me about them. And they explained why we were better than all of them. And I said to them, you know, either you're wrong or I'm stupid. And they said, what do you mean? And I said, because I'm giving to 11 of them because I really cared about conservation. And I thought some of them were better at stewardship and some of them were better at the science and, and some of them were more geographically focused. And uh, we didn't have a very good uh, local conservation group in Boston. Well, I think that's true in families. They fall apart over power, not over money. That if you look at the major lawsuits, most of them are because somebody said, well, I'm the oldest and I can make the decisions for the family after dad died. Uh, and that drives people apart. So one of the things we've always tried to do in the family is say, no, this is your money. You know, you may do something stupid with it, but it's up to you to make decisions. So it sounds like from the fundraiser's perspective, it's most important to take the time to understand those power dynamics. Absolutely. You know, because we've all met people who say, I made the money and it's mine to give away. And you have others who are like, uh, you know, Charlie wrote his book about philanthropic fundraising. And uh, it was a lot about getting people to think about philanthropy as a way to unite the family. Very interesting. In an article, Five Surprising Things About Philanthropy, you talk about the nuance between being cooperative versus competitive, and that's in with internal stakeholders within big, important institutions. Where do, where do you suggest drawing the line between cooperation and competition, and how can we work together to yield more success? You know, there was a big battle at Harvard when I was vice provost, or actually when I was senior associate dean, about these are my donors. And I would always say, no, they're not your donors. It's their money. And how do we, in fact, help them fulfill their philanthropic objectives? And there are two stories that are perhaps relevant to your question, Catherine. One is a guy that... Uh, I knew had a lot more money than he was rated for by the development system at Harvard. And I looked and found out he'd given a very major gift to Johns Hopkins to support gene therapy. And I said to myself, you know, this guy's interested in the bleeding edge of science. So I called him, I knew him a little bit. He was an ex-student way in the past. And I called him and said, you know, you may be interested. I know you're interested in gene therapy. I know you've given a lot of money there and I don't, I'm not asking you for any money, but would you be interested in talking to the people in the stem cell Institute? Because this is the point that Bush wasn't supporting it. And it was a major breakthrough in science. He said, I'd love to come. So he came, didn't ever ask him for money. And he showed up, uh, a check showed up about four weeks later for $5 million. And he did that every year for seven years. Incredible. And, you know, the only thing, so was I being cooperative? Yeah, he gave Harvard Business School a little bit of money. 
But what he really cared about was that. I don't think I took one cent away from Harvard. And another guy was somewhat similar. It was a little better for the business school because he made a $25 million gift and he gave us a million. He said, will you help me do what I wanted to do? And, you know, and that relates to knowing your place in somebody's philanthropic heart at that moment. There's a guy named Frank Batten, who I served on his board for, this is the landmark communication. I was on his board for 22 years and he was kind enough to say I helped him do some things that were useful to him. And I, we were trying to buy GBH's old building at Harvard, which was absolutely critical piece of land. And we had a very limited time to do it. And I thought, I knew Frank well enough that I said, he will take my call. And so I went down to see him. And as I sat there, I said, I'm going to get into a fight with Frank because I'm going to tell him how important this is to Harvard. And he's going to tell me how important the University of Virginia is. He'll tell me that he would have been a juvenile delinquent if he hadn't gone to Culver Academy. He'll tell me that his wife is the chairman of the board of Old Dominion University. And he'll tell me he's trying to put together a library in honor of his uncle who raised him because he was an orphan. So other than that, I knew I was at the top of the list. And I <laughs> all I said to him is, I hope this you could be that we could be number five on your list while we're trying to raise this money. And he looked at me, he says, that's about right, Howard. How much is it going to cost? And I said, $35 million. He said, I'll do it. And we were number five. But I think if I'd gone in this telling him how important we were, uh, for a variety of reasons, I would have been fighting with him. And so yeah. the whole issue of competition versus once you put your mindset as you're helping them fulfill their philanthropic objectives, you have a very different conversation. And, an example you know, of seeing someone as a full person, as not a name on a list, but truly. And certainly not somebody on a pyramid. Right. Right. Well, you've referenced a few times your perspective as a donor, you know, you working with your family and how some of the gifts that you've given in conservation. How does being a donor help you be a better fundraiser? How does that inform your approach? Well, for one thing, it tells me what I hate when people do it to me. Right. Yeah. You Tell know. us what you hate. Well, number one I hate is the recognition list. Because that's to me is offensive. I don't give money to be recognized. You know, I don't feel guilty about having made some money. I really just want to accomplish my objectives. Uh, so that's my number one peeve. The second is we need, we need, we need. You know, I, I have the line I use, I give through, that I used in fundraising, you give through Harvard, not to Harvard. And uh, that helps people think about why they may want to give because a scholarship is not a gift to Harvard or to Columbia. A scholarship is a gift to a worthy student that we're particularly good at choosing. You know, somebody asked me for a quarter million dollars yesterday, and I said, I can't do it. I, here are my, but I was honest with them. I said, here are the commitments I've made, and we give away a pretty healthy percentage of our income every year, you know, well over 10%. But I said, you know, I want to help and I'm happy to be on your list, but I can't do it right now. 
to one of the things you have to recognize as a donor is there's the sort of yes, there's the not now, there's the yes, but let me talk to my spouse. And then there's the hell no. Uh, and there's a difference <laughs> yeah. among those answers, most of which sound like no, but what you're really trying to do as a fundraiser is know which of those four no's you're really hearing. Right. Well, speaking of which, we, let's shift into talking about that, talking about fundraising in uncertain times and how things have changed since we've gone virtual. Uh, I'm glad you just shared that quarter of a million dollar example because that was one of the things we wanted to dive into. You've served on many for-profit and not-for-profit institutions as a trustee and a volunteer. We'd love to hear some examples one or a few of organizations that you've enjoyed working with. Why is that? And then on the flip side, especially during this time, have you been solicited in a way that was compelling? I mean, you've told us about this one, but you know, what are the particulars that have been effective from your perspective? I, as I think I said, or maybe I didn't, but we've sort of focused our gifts on education the environment and social justice. You know, what makes me interested is how well will my money be leveraged? If it's going to be a big gift, I, you know, I, I guess those things of the environment and social justice, I mean, one of my favorite ones right now, and, and because of where I am in some pledges, I can't do as much as I'd like, but it's something called upstream and they are, trying to solve the unplanned pregnancy problem. I like statistics, I like models, I like things that uh, help me understand if they thought through the problem. And these folks took on the state of Delaware, which seems strange, except that they had the highest unplanned pregnancy rate in the country. It's 57%, according to the government statistics, were unplanned pregnancies. And they developed this program, they went to every clinic in Delaware, except for the Catholic hospitals who wouldn't accept them. And over the last five years, they've dropped the unplanned pregnancy rate by 22% and the abortion rate by 30%. Well, it's pretty easy for me to go out and sell this to my friends. And we've raised $250 million. Uh, so, you know, but that kind of information is saying, this is an important problem. They're effective at it, and you can help us. They actually got the governor to provide free contraception as a benefit uh, for everybody in Delaware. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that gets me fairly excited. And just to parse that out, was it about the data that was provided, or was it about seeing the results that you wanted to propel forward? Well, I got involved before the data was in on Delaware. Okay. But I also saw the way they were running experiments. And the experiments were, you know, they became very data-driven very early. Vera mentioned I'm involved with a hospital. And they came in, uh, we're talking about a capital campaign, as everybody is. I'm getting tired of my fifth once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for the same organization. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but they came in with something. I said it was all the hospital needs. The hospital needs. I said 
know the community needs and start all your statements, the community needs to adapt the emergency room to modern methods of triage, service, and reminder that uh, right now you don't have a locked psychiatric ward. In an emergency room, a lot of the people come in with psychiatric problems. You might want to be able to walk them away so the experience of the other people is uh, yeah. a positive experience. There's so many needs out there. And if you express it as needs, you're competing. If you can figure out what people want to accomplish, then you can make real progress. So I think the problem solving, you've given some really good examples and that's, that's something that we're wanting to explore more. And actually I was chuckling to myself when you shared your, your personal top three priorities because they're actually three buckets of our current campaign. Uh, very much, you know, geared towards thinking about these world problems. So it, this is great because it, it does feel very applicable to our work. I wonder, since you don't know exactly all the programs going on at Columbia and everything we're working on, could you give an example of problem solving through HBS of like how you would, how you would phrase that and how you would present that to a donor? My favorite example of this is Arthur Rock, he gave the chair that I sat in at Harvard. And uh, I don't know if the name Arthur Rock means anything to you, but he he was a minor investor. He put 300,000 into Intel and 300,000 into Apple. And those were the first investments in those two firms. So he did very well. Uh, but Arthur uh, decided that education of kids was particularly inner city kids was not being done well. So he created something called Bay Area Scholarships for the inner city. And he gave 5,000 scholarships a year, $30 million to send kids to Catholic schools. Uh, Arthur has no kids and he's Jewish. Uh, so that wouldn't be a highly predictable uh, mm -hmm. thing, outcome. After a number of years of that, he said, you know, but the problem is really not, I can't do that for everybody. So what can I do? And he became the major supporter of Teach for America. So your grad uh, got a lot of support from our Harvard Business School guy. And most recently he said, but I'm sending these kids into horrible situations. Uh, what can I do about that? And he worked to create something called leadership for educational equity. And he's trained graduates of Teach for America to run for school boards. And he's got over 200 of them elected to school boards to try and change the system. I can tell you a similar story about Bloomberg. And there's a guy I work with closely in his foundation that uh, is trying to do the same thing in social justice. Uh, so it, you can't assume there's one best way. Right. And what was particularly pleasing about the book is that uh, you saw how many people approached the problem in so many different ways. I mean, there's one couple that decided too much food was being wasted in the supermarkets in Australia. They developed a system to collect it that have now served 95 million meals. What I'm taking away from you here is that it's it's really important to understand the root 
passion within the donor. And then whatever that is, it could be a myriad of things. But if you know that, you're going to have more success. Well, that, and I think this is the answer to the competition versus cooperation. You know, you will not get, I mean, I would never get a $25 million gift from some of the people I got involved in science. So I don't feel like I took one cent away from Harvard Business School. But I did make some friends because they felt they couldn't have, they wouldn't have known about these things very important to them. Yeah, it would, it would have just gone to a different institution, but same cause. Yeah. Yeah. We have several people on the call who do domestic work and international work. And we know that you recently presented to the London Club of HBS about the problem solving book and some of the stuff we've just been talking about. Um, but we were wondering if you see differences between the development work, whether it's in the US or international, and how do you think things have become more similar or more different as we've gone virtual? To me, international is a different beast, but I think there's an increasing consciousness that in fact, government and religion is not going to solve these problems. And so you're seeing leadership, Vero knows the people in Brazil fairly well, uh, but you're seeing leadership of people. There's a guy, one of the people we interviewed for the problem solving is set up an organization to try and encourage philanthropy in England. I think, again, it's, if Vero could verify, that sounds a little alliterative, but I would say that one of the things in Brazil is we, it's quick that they wanted to help Brazil. Absolutely. And they still do. They still do. So, you know, if you can figure out a way that they're, so scholarships for Brazilian students was an important thing, but also education. Uh, could you help them with developing the educational system? Uh, you know, so making connections with faculty that would show up at a school in Brazil was very uh, helpful. And, you know, most of these people know that there are transactional elements, but you don't start with the transaction. You start with how do I help them fulfill their objectives? And then it's amazing how it works from there. But it's a longer term selling process. Vero, what would you, your comment be on that? I agree. And um, I, I think um, for the top uh, donors, those who have been doing it the longest and have uh, become more acquainted with how fundraising works in the US, I believe they also have become very sophisticated in how they do their fundraising. So I think the, the, the for example, the family we're talking about at one point, it was literally an individual out of pocket wealth and for what, for his alma mater. But then it became, he had, a, he put a foundation around his philanthropy. He um, made sure that that foundation articulated his mission and his vision for Brazil. And, um, and that through Harvard or through Columbia too, as well, actually, uh, we could help him fulfill that mission. Um, so that it wasn't wasted money for me, either of those institutional perspectives. What is that? 
It was not wasted money from either of those two no. perspectives because they, they serve very important needs. Yeah. And so I think actually, Howard, what you said um, about what is important not to Columbia, but what is important to the institution, uh, to the donor or the community is even more relevant internationally, I would say. It, it, people are really focused on their local impact in a way. Often change requires an external shock. People, the philanthropists are juggling. They're not on a ballistic course. They got a lot of balls in the air. Some of them are their economic balls. Some of them are their family balls. Some of them are their philanthropic balls. Some of, their, some of them are politically involved and juggling. And you've got to sort of figure out when it is that the ball you're talking about will be coming down into their hand. My signature question that I ask all my guests on the podcast is, what do you know for sure? And given the conversation we've just had, I'm very curious to hear your answer. So am I. <laughs> uh, well, I think the first thing is that everyone's different. You know, it's not, this is a uh, jock and this is a, everybody's different and they're different over time and they're different over their resources. I mean, I was a scholarship student all the way through uh, my graduate work and uh, you know, I'm not a scholarship student anymore. So understanding the evolution of the person is absolutely critical. I think second thing I would say is community matters, but the community that people identify and understanding the community that they identify with is absolutely critical, not just in fundraising, but in the interpersonal relationships. And I think the third thing that all of us have learned is change is hard. I think those three things, that everyone's different, that understanding their community and how they think about the community is really important. And then don't expect any of this to be easy. There is no magic bullet. Thank you so much, Howard. Howard, I want to add, um, there are things that uh, don't ever change too. It's like, that's your kindness, your generosity, your wisdom. I am so grateful for your time. I am so grateful to our colleagues at CBS who joined us uh, for this conversation. To Adam, Ryan, thank you too for joining. Um, thank you, Howard, so much. Okay, Thanks, well, good luck, everyone. Thank, thank you. you so much. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much, Howard. Bye. Thank you. Appreciate it.